nice for me to see old students that I've had before, old friends and also new ones. I haven't been back in Australia for two years and uh, it's really nice for me to sit here again in this very familiar hall and I hope that you're going to enjoy this course and not going to think it's a real chore. It's really a matter of how one approaches it. The Buddha said, in order to meditate successfully, one has to be comfortable in body and mind. Now this comfort in body and mind doesn't mean that we're going to sprawl out on the floor and lie flat on our backs and try to make ourselves as cozy as possible. But it also doesn't mean that we're going to punish ourselves and sit with excruciating pains. Neither way works. Both are extremes. The Buddha's teaching is the middle way. All straight down the middle. Sometimes it feels like one is on a tightrope trying to balance. And that's really so. The balance that we can find within ourselves. To be comfortable in body and mind. You will see that it's not easy. And one of the reasons for having come here is probably because the mind isn't comfortable. Because those people who think that they're totally comfortable, they're contented with what they're doing, and they're out there watching TV. But once we have realized that we're not quite comfortable, that there is something lacking, something isn't quite the way it could be if, then we try to find something a little different from what everybody else is doing. We'll also have to come to terms with the fact eventually, that meditation, successful meditation, needs a great deal of letting go. Those of you who have done it before know about it. Some of you who have done little or none will find out about it. We're not getting anything when we're meditating. We're letting go. In the end, we have less and less because the mind no longer needs to churn around. There are many methods of meditation. And a method is a method and nothing else. When it comes to the point of really knowing, the method no longer plays any part. We're going to use methods naturally. Without methods, we won't know what to do. But they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is what we find within ourselves and to understand it. The understood experience. Now when I say experience, I don't mean anything extraordinary. I don't mean 
that we're going to have extraordinary experiences, something so out of this world that it can only be done in a meditation course or on a meditation pillow. Most of the experiences which we're going to have are going to be an understanding of ourselves. And that is as it should be. But we might be able to understand ourselves in a little different way than we usually do. And then our meditation is very successful. This is one of the problems that people have in meditation courses or even at home when they meditate or wherever they try. They often think, this is no good. I can't keep on the meditation subject. I can't be concentrated. I'm not meditating. This is no use. I'll try something else. And whatever it may be, relaxation, therapy, uh, rebirthing, whatever it may be called, that's what I'll try. Meditation doesn't have to have specific results. Meditation is introspection, but in a different way than thinking about oneself. Although there are many methods, there are only two directions in meditation. And these two directions have to be clearly known and clearly practiced so that one knows what one is doing. It is another myth about meditation that one is going to have experiences which one cannot even describe. If one can't describe it, it's worthless. If it is valuable and useful, it can be described. Otherwise, we won't know what it is. And if we don't know what it is, it's not going to help us at all. We want to be helped through our meditation to have a life which has more ease, more comfort of the mind in it, we want to have a life where we can be more harmonious, relate better, where we do not worry and are fearful. So if we don't know what's happening in meditation, how can we take it with us when we leave here? We have the two directions in meditation, and they're called calm and insight. In the Pali language that the Buddha used, it's samatha and vipassana, which means nothing else except calm and insight. That's all it means. And that's all one needs to do. There is nothing else. That's it. Those two directions are there, and they need to be practiced both of them for the reason that there are very few people in the world and particularly very few Westerners 
who can become calm in meditation right off the bat. And there are even fewer people in the world who can gain insight just like that. So we have to practice both. And that's what we're going to do with our meditation practice. We're going to go in both directions because that is the natural way for the mind to operate. Meditation is a totally natural endeavor for the mind to do. The only reason it's so difficult for most people is because we haven't done it. That's all. It's not because it's asking the mind to do something unusual. It needs practice, it needs patience with oneself, perseverance and determination. Now, if we don't accomplish anything else except get those factors into us, we've done a lot. Patience, perseverance, determination, and continual practice. These are extremely valuable qualities which one needs to develop if the meditation is going to have a real result. We can't look upon meditation as an off-and-on affair, which is what, unfortunately, most people do. We all have this um, way of justifying. The Buddha said, the fool says, it's too early, it's too late, it's too cold, it's too hot, I'm too full, I'm too empty. In other words, we find reasons for not doing it. Here, during these ten days, we have a situation and a setup which is so conducive to meditation that hopefully it will instigate all of you to continue it when you go home. Because we have all the things that are needed for a meditator, we're going to be looked after for food, we have no duties except helping one hour a day with some of the maintenance, we have absolute quiet in this forest except the cicadas are making some noises and sometimes we may hear a kookaburra. So we have the, everything that is needed for a meditator. And it is a habit-forming activity. And if we can form the habit while you're here and take it home with you and never ever deviate from that habit until you're fully enlightened, then you have done a great thing in these ten days. Our ordinary mind, the one that we're all familiar with, thinks all day long and dreams all night long. Now that ordinary mind that we're all familiar with, that thinks, is also on a level of consciousness where it gives us a fair bit of trouble. Because we are constantly judging and making 
assessments of what we want and don't want, like and don't like, what we appreciate and hate, and also because of that kind of mind, fear arises of not getting what we want and losing that what we like to keep. Now when we have those sort of emotions in our mind, when these sort of waves of thoughts arise, obviously there can't be any clarity. If you think for a moment of an ocean where waves are arising and going down again in constant succession, and you want to see what's under the surface of the water, you will readily know that this is impossible. You can't see what's under the surface of the water because the waves are in the way. When the waves have finally stopped and the surface of the water has become smooth again, one can look under that surface and see what is underneath. It's the same in the mind. When we have quietened it down to the point where the likes and the dislikes, the fears and anxieties, the worries, the hopes, the memories have finally stopped even for a moment, we have a smooth surface where we can see what's underneath. We can see into the depths of the mind without the thinking process. Seeing into the depths of the mind without the thinking process accomplishes the calm of the smooth surface and the ability to penetrate into the more profound and deeper aspects which we can find within. All of us have the ability to know the truth about ourselves, about the world around us. We have the potential of getting rid of all dukkha, all unsatisfactoriness. We have the potential of an inner peace and quiet and joy which goes far beyond the worldly conditions. All we have to do is find it. For that, we have to quieten down. In a course such as this, one of the aspects, one of the outer impositions of quietening down is noble silence. We're going to keep noble silence. That means you don't talk to each other. You can always ask questions of me here in the hall at the time when there is question time. You can always, you will always have an interview with me where you are not only allowed to talk but requested to talk. And if you have any physical difficulty of any sort, you can talk to the person who is in the office and ask them for whatever it is you need. But don't do that 
just to talk. Because we have to have some sort of control over our own mind, which we have to impose in this way from the outside, and which eventually will be part of the inner experience where we realize that this quiet mind is the first time that we have experienced bliss. Now, bliss is part of calm. It is part of becoming aware of the purity of one's own mind when it doesn't think. It doesn't mean that the mind is blank. There is no such thing in meditation as blank. I always mention that because so many people are under the mistaken impression that not thinking means having a blank mind. It means to have a non-thinking mind, which means to have an experiencing mind. The mind that experiences either the meditation subject, which we're going to use the breath to start with, other subjects as we go along, the mind that experiences that or becomes an observer of the thinking so that it can drop it again. When the mind is able then to keep away from thinking for even a little while, something happens which is extremely important an automatic purification process. We don't have to do anything about it. It happens automatically. It happens from non-thinking. All our impurities, all our defilements, all our fears, worries, and so on, arise from thinking. When we stop thinking, even for one moment, what we experience is the purity of the mind, which is there as an underlying reality on which your thinking is superimposed. So one moment of concentration is one moment of purification. The more we are able to concentrate, the more we are able to purify. And as we do that, we will come nearer and nearer to that state of mind where we have peace, joy, and bliss within, which has no other cause except our concentration and our own purity. Even a glimpse of that will change one's direction. Namely, we will no longer then seek our satisfactions in the world through our senses, but we will continue to seek our satisfaction, our contentment, through our own inner purification. And we will realize at that time that this is where it's to be found. It is a great relief when that happens because we no longer have to hassle about all the things that one has to accomplish 
in the world, all the achievement syndromes, all the worries that it may not happen, all the fears that that what has happened may be undone. Because we realize it cannot bring that inner peace. That is our pathway to calm. Naturally, there are many steps on the way and we will discuss them in more detail. To use that calm properly means to use it for insight, for realizing the absolute reality which is different from our relative reality in which we live. The relative reality in which we live has never brought total satisfaction to anyone. It can bring pleasure. We've all had that. But it can't bring that inner satisfaction which will tell us that we have everything we want. People search for the things they want. They search for them far away from home. They go to different countries. People search for them in so many different ways by working hard, by not working at all, by taking something in to the body that changes the mind state, by trying to meet up with people who seem to have it. None of that will be satisfying in the long run. The real satisfaction comes from the real insight. The real insight comes from the real calm. Calm is a means. Insight is the end. There is no other means. It's the only means. And that's why we sit on the pillow with crossed legs and try to watch the breath. Insight, in Buddhist terminology, always means one of three things or all three. Realizing impermanence, the unsatisfactory state of worldly existence or all existence, and the corelessness or substancelessness of all that exists. The first one of those three which I've mentioned, the impermanence, is the one which is most useful for our purposes. It is very rare to find someone to argue about it. I have one or two, found one or two people, but it's rare. Most people agree. It's everything's impermanent. And after having agreed, most people forget about it again. But here, in the surrounding, under these circumstances that we have here, we can give it a very good go to see the reality of impermanence. We will discuss the other two also at length and in detail, and you will have a chance to argue about them if you wish. But for the meditation purpose, we will use to start out with the understanding and the experience of impermanence. And as we see that more and more, we will gain more and more insight 
into who we are and what we are. And every time a resistance arises within ourselves to see ourselves as such an impermanent phenomena which is constantly arising and ceasing, that resistance also gives us a wonderful clue about our own mind state. The way we're going to use the meditative processes, we're going to use the breath as our meditation subject. The breath, as it goes in and out of the nostrils. Now, if any one of you has practiced with the rise and fall of the abdomen and has felt that this is satisfying and successful, please stay with it. It's not useful to change horses in midstream. If you have tried it and it wasn't, you didn't get concentrated, use the breath at the nostrils. For those of you who have meditated in the past, and quite a number of you have, and you have found yourself a certain system of watching the breath, please do it. Use it. For those of you who haven't, I'll explain the possibilities. And I'm going to explain four different possibilities. Try one and stick to that one and see whether you can get some concentration. Be assured that getting concentration does not depend on the meditation subject. It depends on practice. It's difficult. It's difficult because we haven't practiced for no other reason. We have allowed our mind to do what it pleases, to run from one subject to the next, to become unhappy, depressed, worried, we have allowed it to be grasping, hating. We have allowed it whatever it wishes. Now we're going to learn not to allow it. Naturally, that is difficult. Naturally, that takes time. Please don't make the mistake of blaming yourself when the concentration doesn't happen. Because when you blame yourself or become frustrated or angry with yourself or upset about it, you are adding insult to injury. Just look at it as a universal problem, which it is. If it wasn't the universal problem, the world at large, which you all know about through the media, wouldn't look as it does. Mind is a problem and all of us are having the same problem so never think that you each one is particularly uh, unable to do it or find it particularly hard or have a particular problem we all have the same problem the possibilities of watching the breath are this 
In the first instance, for those of you who have practiced in the past, the most pinpointed area is to watch the breath at the nostrils. As the breath goes in and out of the nostrils, the wind of the breath touches the nostrils and there is touch contact which creates a feeling. All our contacts with the senses create a feeling. That feeling helps one to stay concentrated at that point. Some people watch the breath touching just above the upper lip underneath the nose. That's fine too. Either way is fine. This is the most one-pointed spot, therefore the most difficult one to keep one's attention on. Now there are different ways of helping ourselves with that. We can use counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No further than ten. Whenever the mind wanders, bring it back to one immediately. Otherwise, you will be sitting there and thinking, I think I was at seven. No, no, it was six. No, I, I'm sure it must have been nine. And we're going to have a whole um, number story, just back to one. Another way, some people don't like numbers. They like words. Use a word, such as peace. Peace on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. But never forget to also watch the breath. The word or the number is the crutch. The breath is also there to be watched. Because our minds are used to having so many different things of input coming in, we find it very difficult to just have the breath there as our focus of attention. Therefore, we offer it either numbers or a word. If you don't like the word peace, any word you like will do. Words are not holy. Words are concepts. So you can pick anyone, any word you like, or use that one which I'm suggesting. Sometimes people who are devoted Buddhists use the word buddho, which is very conducive because bud on the in-breath, ho on the out-breath, the word goes quite well with the breath and it means to the Buddha which means can mean to oneself that we ha are committing ourselves to go in the way of the Buddha a fourth possibility is to watch the breath as far in and as far out as you're aware of it which means that you follow it it goes in through the nostrils you watch it going up the nose you can watch it coming down. You can watch it going into the throat, into the lungs. You can watch it going down to the stomach and coming up again. You don't have to search for it in those parts of the body. All you need to do is just be attentive to wherever it is. That's all. Pick one of those methods and use it. If you have meditated in the past, 
Use the one that you've always used. That's the one you're familiar with. In order to be comfortable in the mind, one needs to direct one's mind towards something which will make the mind feel at ease. There are different possibilities. The first one will be to appreciate yourself for the effort you are making and are going to make during this course. Appreciate yourself for that. Think of that as an excellent thing you're doing. And think of yourself as someone who is really intent on spiritual growth. That appreciation will give you a feeling of contentment. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that you remember the good deeds you have done. Just for a moment. Just to give the mind a chance to relax, become at ease. As long as the mind is tense and worried and thinking about the world and all the problems that exist in the world, meditation is an impossibility. We have to give our mind the best chance that's possible. So that's another way. Appreciate yourself for the effort you're making in coming here or think of the good things you've done in the past. Another good way of getting comfort in the mind to start with is to feel gratitude towards the Buddha and his teaching that it makes it possible for you to practice this particular path if you've had anything to do with it in the past, if you know anything about it already. You do that for a few minutes before you start your meditation. And then let the mind fall into the breath. Do not try to think about the breath, but let the mind just fall into it as if the breath and the mind will become one. I'm sure you can, all of you, right now, let your mind fall into your own bedroom at home. You don't have to think about your bedroom, you can just let it be there. Can you do that? Right, you can do that and be in your own bedroom at home. Well, it's the same with the breath. You can just be in the breath. You don't have to think about it. The more we think, the less we concentrate. And eventually, if one has thought enough during this life, we will also come to the conclusion that thinking is dukkha. It does not bring a great deal of joy and happiness. You let the mind fall into the breath. And if you can let it be there and not remove itself, you will experience periods of peacefulness, even moments of it. As these moments of peacefulness disappear again, you must remember to see the impermanence of all mind moments. 
You see, we are all very happy when our unpleasant thoughts and our unpleasant experiences are impermanent. Nobody minds that at all. The quicker they disappear, the happier we are. But when our pleasant mind moments and our pleasant experiences arise, then we would like to keep them. So the moment you have an experience of having been able to stay with the breath and having that feeling of peacefulness arise, and then the mind wandering off again and losing it, then is the time to gain insight into the impermanence of even the pleasant aspects, which we are constantly trying to support and trying to keep or re-establish. If the mind does not stay on the breath but starts being distracted, going off into thinking, the quicker you can become aware of the fact that you are thinking, the more mindfulness you have established. In the beginning, it usually takes quite a while. It takes quite a while until there is an awareness of the fact that, oh, I'm not meditating, I'm thinking. All right, whatever it is, doesn't matter. And the next step is to realize what the thought is all about. To give it, so to say, a label. This is an extremely helpful activity in two ways. It helps us to realize what our thinking process really is like and it also helps us to drop it more quickly because most of the thoughts that we are having during meditation if not all of them are totally useless and many many of them are not even proper thoughts they are just like bubbles arising making no sense whatsoever. The sooner we become aware of that, the better it is for us. Because one of the first things that a meditator learns is not to be so sure about his or her own thinking processes. We are willing to give ourselves and others the benefit of the doubt. Because we have seen in meditation that most of the thinking that arises makes practically no sense at all. So what is a very good practice? That the minute the mind goes off, and it will be going off for a few days, quite uh, a lot, until it has settled down to its new activity of being concentrated rather than trying to think all the time. At that time, the first reaction is, I'm thinking. The second one is, this is a thought about future or past, liking or disliking, wanting or not wanting. 
it usually falls into those categories. You can make up your own categories, it doesn't matter. If the thought is very fleeting, if, you're, if you are an experienced meditator, and the thought is very fleeting, just like a cloud, there's no need to do that. The cloud just goes off by itself. But when the thought is more solid than just that wispy, foggy affair, then it's necessary to know I'm thinking and what it's all about. When we learn about our own thinking process and then substitute, let them fall and substitute with the breath as our meditation subject, we have learned a very important lesson for our everyday life because we will learn from that to be able to drop all the thinking that is useless in everyday life and substitute it with that which is useful to us. In other words, we can substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. Once we have learned to be in charge of our own thinking, we'll never have to be unhappy again. Only a fool becomes voluntarily unhappy. It's a mind that does the trick. The minute we realize what there is as a thinking process and are able to substitute with the breath with taking the first step to be in charge. To be in charge by deliberately changing our mind. Now you all know we can change our mind. Here we learn to do it deliberately. That's one of the problems that arise the thinking and the uh, distraction through the thinking. The other problem which arises is the feeling. Namely, when we sit in the meditative uh, position and haven't been used to that, then unpleasant feelings arise. And from these unpleasant feelings that arise, the impulses, and instinctive reaction is to get rid of them. The quicker the better. And without even thinking about it, one moves. Now we're going to change that in this uh, meditation process so that we can gain some benefit from the unpleasant feelings. There is nothing that arises within us that cannot be used to our benefit as a learning situation. And unless we do it, we're wasting valuable time. What we will do with the unpleasant feelings which arise is that we will analyze what is happening to us. What is happening is that we're having a sense contact, namely touch contact, because we are touching with the knees on the mat or with the legs on top, or with the bones on, on the floor, whatever it may be, there's a touch contact for the body, and all sense contacts create feelings. And there are only three kinds, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the neutral ones we usually think are pleasant also, because at least they're not unpleasant. So we're really only dealing with pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And 
as you meditate more and more and become more and more introspective through your meditation, you will also find that all of us, all human beings, live according to pleasant or unpleasant feelings, constantly trying to get the one and get rid of the other. The whole world does nothing else. Here we're going to do something else. We're going to stop this computerized printout. We're going to do something else. We're going to change it. We're going to have the realization of the fact that here's a sense contact and that an unpleasant feeling has arisen. And because we know this to be called pain, we give it the name pain. And immediately the mind reacts to that and says, I don't like it. I'm going to get rid of it. And before we're even aware of all that, we have already moved. But we can stop our instinctive reaction and become aware of the fact that the mind is saying, I don't like it. And we can then try to disengage our ownership of the feeling. We can disengage it by realizing that we didn't ask this feeling to come, that it has come of its own, that we are reacting to it negatively, which is another unwholesomeness in our mind, and that there's no need to do that if we can get back to the meditation subject. And we will realize by doing it even for one minute that whatever we don't put our mind on doesn't exist. The minute we've put our mind back on the breath, the unpleasant feeling no longer exists. However, it will call again, and we will try and detach from it by realizing it's just a feeling. We don't have to own it. We will also realize that this body is always concerned with many unpleasant feelings. And people everywhere on this planet are searching for happiness and for peace. And we so often have the idea and are again and again also indoctrinated into the idea that peace is something that we can make a pact for. We can write a peace agreement we can make peace demonstrations, we can have rallies, we can have books on it, we can have signed treaties, and yet we have all that. And do we have peace? Very little. The world around us reflects our own inner being. And the world around us may be at war or may be at peace, and yet our own inner being is the only thing that we can relate to, is the only thing that we actually live with. So if we sincerely and truthfully want peace, we have to find it ourselves. This finding of peace happens within. And it is closely connected with how much we're willing to give up 
craving, wanting, searching, becoming, none of that is peaceful. When we have ambitions, when we have desire for achievement, when we have desires for anything which is other than what there already is, that creates within us the anxiety whether we're going to get it and the fear once we've got it that we may not be able to keep it. If this remains within us, peace will constantly escape us. And yet, if we're really interested not only in our own inner peace, but also in peace in the world, we have a very powerful and forceful ability and possibility to create that peace if we first find it within. Because all of us are the world. We are each part of a long chain. And you know that a chain can only be as strong as its weakest link. So as we become stronger links, the whole of it improves. And we will never be able to see and experience peace if it isn't our own. The Buddha was able to formulate the way to peace in a very succinct and pithy statement which we call the Four Noble Truths. He also made a promise. He said, there's only one thing I teach and that suffering and its end to reach. And with this promise, he gave a guideline how to achieve this peaceful and joyous state within which can never be changed by outer circumstances. If more people were willing to accept these guidelines and work on their inner purification, we would find a great lessening of suffering mankind. All the unfortunate happenings that we see in the world with which we are familiar through the media are manifestations of the lack of purification. They are manifestations of human greed and hate based on the ego illusion. We need not continue along that path, each one of us, if we are sincere and truthful in trying to find the way out of all suffering. Suffering mankind could get out of that difficulty. Now, he also gave a very excellent and very succinct description of the reason for all our unsatisfactory states. 
and there's only one reason and that's wanting simple isn't it but by no means easy very simple we are always not satisfied with the way things are and because of that we feel a lack of peacefulness a lack of ease a lack of well-being we want something different we don't want it the way it just happens to be now now because we are constantly trying to go against that stream of the way things are we are always in a way anxious and fearful and that is what we can actually learn to overcome and come to a point in our inner being where there is nothing but peace and if we're interested like most intelligent human beings are in peace in the world then our first obligation is to make peace within ourselves we are the world all of us here are part of the world if we have total peace within we are contributing towards peace in the world if we are not totally peaceful we are contributing towards war in the world not necessarily warfare but the discontent which creates the kind of unhappiness which we see not only in people but in nations and this is the way we can learn to do that namely if we have a proper pathway a proper guideline where we realize that it all hinges on our own reaction the whole thing hinges on nothing else except on our reactions to our contacts it is as a matter of fact a human being has constant contact now at this particular moment we all have touch contact because we're sitting down we all have sight contact because we're looking at something at someone we're looking at either at me or at the shrine or at something we have sound contact because you're listening and you may have also thought contact if you're thinking about what i'm saying so at this particular moment we are making contact with four of our senses the only thing that isn't happening is we don't have taste contact and we don't have any smell odor contact we may have that yet also and all those contacts are absolutely necessary for a human being there's nothing we can do about it on the contrary we'd be most unhappy if we didn't see didn't hear couldn't feel any touch couldn't think couldn't smell we'd be most unhappy but the unfortunate and rather absurd situation in humanity is that we are under the impression that that's all there is to it 
that all there is to a human being is to make the most pleasant contacts. And yet, it's totally impossible. We cannot only have pleasant contacts. We will at least have 50-50. We will hear things which we don't like. We will touch, have touch contact which is unpleasant, we'll get some pain. We will taste some things which we don't like. We'll see things which we don't like, and so on. So we have a 50-50 proposition, and that's, get, that's pretty good. If our karma is worse, it may be much worse than that, maybe 60-40. Assuming we have 50-50, because we're having a good and uh, um, solid type of life, then it is the normal reaction for all untrained human beings to try to get away from the unpleasant contact and run after the pleasant. And that's what our whole economy is built upon. I was in a house today, I've never seen such a thing in my life, there was a jacuzzi bathtub, there was a massage shower, there, was a, there were two um, easy chairs that you could put up the feet that was lifted up and the feet could go up and the thing went back and uh, you could lie back. There was a perfume spray coming out of the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Costly sense contact and with these sense contacts which we in order to have them pleasant we pay for that we are momentarily pleasantly uh, we have a pleasant feeling momentarily but it doesn't last and so we have to keep on renewing it and so we're very busy we have to renew the pleasant contact and we have to get away from the unpleasant ones. Now, if we believe that that's all there is to it, we'll be busy with that to the end of life. And at the end of life, most people have quite a number of unpleasant physical contacts. I mean, the body doesn't get any better, and so it is a matter of great uh, suffering that the body gives out unpleasant feelings. Now, with, if we realize that these contacts are nothing but the outer conditions and that each contact creates a feeling and that our reaction to that feeling need not be pre-programmed, then we can start attending to our inner life. And although we will still have all those sense contacts, we can't avoid that, and it's quite um, normal to have them, we will no longer put them as a priority. We will then find that the priority is to attend to the inner emotions and start to try and purify those 
because that gives us the inner life which will eventually become peaceful. Those of you who were here for the meditation session just now, before we started the talk, uh, joined in in doing the loving-kindness meditation. This is one way of directing the mind towards love and compassion, which are purified emotions. And even if you didn't feel a thing, it doesn't matter, because Thinking is also a sense contact, and as we do it often enough, the feeling will arise. All sense contacts have feeling as a result. So if we think the right things, we will eventually also have the purified feeling with it. And this is what the Buddha taught, that the master of the whole universe is mind and all of us have mind and that is the master of it all and this mind that all of us have is the greatest jewel the greatest asset that anyone can ever have no material goods can ever be more valuable than mind It is the one that can bring us the greatest happiness, but it can also bring us the greatest unhappiness. And I'm sure everybody has already in this life experienced at one time or another an unhappy mind. And one of our greatest mistakes is to then blame the outer condition that has supposedly created the unhappy mind. The outer condition is what I call the trigger. It triggers that unhappiness because we have that dislike within. But if we learn to control our mind, if we learn to react by choice and not by instinct, then we need never be unhappy again because nobody who is not a fool would become unhappy by choice. So it's all a matter of getting in control of one's own mind. And then one can choose one's reactions. Now in order to control one's own mind, obviously one has to practice that kind of control. That kind of control can only be practiced through the meditation. There's no other way to practice. Meditation means that one attempts to keep the mind on the meditation subject without letting it run away. One can compare that to an untrained puppy dog. Now an untrained puppy dog will run everywhere and will do all the wrong things. So gently but very firmly one has to educate that puppy dog. We have to educate our mind gently but very firmly and keep telling it to come back to the meditation subject. Now, of course, one has to do that for quite a a fairly long time because the untrained mind has been with us for ever so long. So it has become a habit. 
and to make it into a trained mind does not happen immediately but on the way from the untrained to the trained mind we will get glimpses almost immediately of what it's like to be concentrated of what it's like not to think now it's usually the case that people who do not follow a meditative path that they believe that thinking is very important and that thinking is the only way to organize one's life that thinking is what is one's own activity which brings results sometimes it does but because the mind keeps thinking all day long and dreaming all night long it gets into a condition of overwork and it has no longer any strength and energy it doesn't have the potential that it actually doesn't actualize the potential that it has for complete clarity it is constantly influenced by outer conditions by what we see and hear and taste and touch and think so with that kind of mind that hasn't any strength in it we don't see clear enough to know what is underlying this reality in which we live and we are constantly thrown back to find our happiness in worldly conditions worldly conditions do not contain the kind of happiness which we are looking for worldly conditions contain pleasure which is quite all right to have but it isn't what most people are looking for pleasure is hedonism most people are not interested in that although there's no reason not to be comfortable it does not fulfill one's inner yearning for a transcending reality and that kind of transcending reality that kind of happiness cannot be found in things in other people who are also looking for it cannot be found in situations or in experiences it has to be found within through a mind which has let go of the rational logical thinking and has come to an experience the buddha calls it the knowledge and vision of things as they really are now that means that an inner vision can arise often different reality and that inner vision is understood that's knowledge it's the understood experience and the understood experience can only arise in a mind which has been trained to be concentrated so that it can bypass or surpass the thinking process the thinking process is totally adequate for accountants lawyers secretaries uh, shoppers perfectly adequate but 
it doesn't create within the kind of peace and happiness that everybody would like to have. And that's why people start meditating. And because it's difficult, people get um, disappointed in it. But we have to remember that to do something which is so utterly different from what we're usually doing cannot be successful immediately. And yet, within a very short time, one can feel that even a moment's <coughs> concentration brings a kind of feeling into the mind which approaches peacefulness. It isn't the real peace yet, but it approaches it. Because at the time of concentration, there's no discrimination. Now, in ordinary daily living, you will find that we're constantly liking or disliking, approving or disapproving, wanting or rejecting. There's a constant dichotomy in our thinking. It is always either this or that. I believe it, I don't believe it. I want it, I don't want it. Constantly. When the mind is concentrated on a meditation subject, it's impossible to do that. And when that discrimination has left one for a moment, one experiences a certain peace. Now that does not mean that one comes out of that as a non-discriminating individual. It means only that one can eventually establish an inner base of peace which makes it possible to accept whatever happens with equanimity. And that is the epitome of our emotions. The Buddha talked about the four supreme emotions which are the only four which are worthwhile having. And all others can and should be discarded. These four are loving-kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. Equanimity does not mean indifference. Indifference is its near enemy. Equanimity is based on wisdom. It is also based on an inner peacefulness. Now when this inner peacefulness arises through the meditation process, one has an immediate experience of the fact that outer conditions, the world at large, has never been able to supply that kind of peacefulness that one gets in the meditation process. And thereby, one is no longer so intent upon getting what one wants and getting rid of what one doesn't want. This is what moves human beings, getting what they want and getting rid of what they don't want. But when it has been found that within lies a totally different reality, one where one doesn't need to get anything, and certainly doesn't have to reject anything, but just has to learn the skill of meditation, and the mind can reach a peaceful state, at that time 
the world does not have the same lure anymore that it had before. And then when it doesn't have that, one's passions are a little diminished and thereby one's suffering. All passions create suffering because they are such a strong wanting or such a strong rejection that suffering is inevitable. Whatever is so badly wanted or so badly not wanted has with has built in a great deal of unhappiness. When we find that peacefulness within through the meditation process, naturally we will try to <coughs> enlarge upon it. In other words, improve our skill. This peacefulness within also contains a kind of happiness which although the word may be the same has a different quality than the pleasures that we've had before or even the happiness which we may have experienced because in in the world our happiness is dependent depends on people or on things or experiences. That dependency creates fear, the fear of losing. And fear is connected to hate and not to happiness. We hate to lose that which we want to have. So if we're dependent upon, for our happiness, dependent upon outside conditions over which we have very little control, if any, we can never have inner peace because those outer conditions are beyond our control. But our inner condition is within our control. It is also dependent upon something. It's dependent upon our concentration. And being dependent upon our concentration, all we have to do is learn it. <coughs> and learning that is the most important and most beneficial thing we can do for ourselves. Nothing can take its place. Learning to concentrate our mind where it can experience its own purity. The mind in its original form is pure. Our impurities come from our thinking. Whatever we think puts upon the mind a sort of film. It has been compared to a completely clean white movie screen on which a constant movie is running. And because this constant movie doesn't have any intermissions, our thinking doesn't get any intermissions, we are not aware of the fact that there has to be a movie screen behind it. And yet, if we get an intermission through the meditation, and realize that this was just a movie that's going on and that behind that is a different reality which is peaceful, calm and happy.
then of course we will try to perfect that skill of getting down to that reality. It's not an easy thing to do very quickly, but it is possible for everyone. It doesn't need any particular person to do that. Anyone who has determination, patience and perseverance can do it. And anyone who's ever done it would never live without it. It is a one thing about which the Buddha said, this is a happiness and a pleasure that I will allow myself. Because when he was enlightened, the Buddha, then his sense pleasures were no longer important to him. But this particular thing of having peace and happiness within was something that he would practice every day. With that, we get a different quality of mind. We get a quality of mind which has found its home. Now, when we haven't got any inner home for the mind, we certainly look for either other persons or one other person or for some situation where the mind is going to feel comfortable and at ease. And sometimes it does and other times it doesn't. But when it has found this inner peace, then it has found a home to which it can return at any time it wishes. You can compare that to having no house to live in. If we had no house for our body to live in, then all the elements, the wind, the rain, the sun, would always bother us. And we would have absolutely no comfort for the body. So we have shelter. The mind doesn't have unless it learns that skill, doesn't have any shelter. So it's always buffeted by the winds of the emotions. It can't go home. It doesn't have a home. But when it has learned that skill, it has a home. That home it can go to. It knows that it can relax there. It can be at ease. There's nothing that it has to comply with, there's nobody to please, there's nothing to do. There's only to be at ease and relax. Just as the body has to be at ease and relax, the mind has to. Because the mind knows it can go there, it feels at ease even if it isn't there. Because it knows it can go back to it. It doesn't have the same kind of peacefulness and happiness when it is outside in the world, but it has changed its whole direction. It knows it can go back home. Just like we know we can take our body back home after work, and if we didn't know that, we'd feel pretty upset, I'm sure. But we can take it home and relax at home.
It's the same for the mind. The quality of the mind changes also in a different way. Because it has the ability to relax and not think, it gains new momentum and new strength, just like the body does at night when it sleeps. Now, the mind does not go to sleep when it meditates. Sometimes it does, but that's not its... uh, supposed to be like that and as it has that ability to rest it gains a strength and energy where it can see a reality which is totally hidden from those who have never given that any attention a reality which is no longer personally personally identified with a separate self. It can see a reality which is universal, namely that all of us are together in this life with each other, with nature surrounding us, with the animals around us, with the sky above, the stars and the moon, which those galaxies that we can see and those that we can't see, with that what we know and what we don't know, a totally complete and united universe without the separation of a personal self. Now, the separation of the personal self is the cause for strife, warfare, argument, dissension, enmity, and dislike. Because each personal self wants to protect itself from all other personal selves and feels threatened if anyone enters their um, territory. When that is no longer a priority, that one's own territory no longer exists as this is my space, and don't come into it unless you're invited. Then, when it feels no longer threatened, there's no fear because everybody is oneself or oneself is everybody. And this unity makes it so much easier (coughs) to live with other human beings because most people's difficulties arise out of human relationships. Human relationships are, for most people, the most difficult thing to handle. And some people find it so difficult that they don't want to handle them at all. (coughs) They are hardly ever totally satisfying. Why is that? Not because the other person isn't satisfying. It's because nobody is totally satisfied. None of us are totally satisfied, so none of the relationships are totally satisfying because you can't have a totally satisfying relationship when you have two unsatisfied beings together. (laughs) When this different reality is seen in a mind which has an inner vision, then with that inner vision, there's the separation disappears and the fear disappears 
and it is easier and possible to really be a loving being, loving towards others without expecting to be loved, which means that we do not have to go and search for someone to love us, which is often difficult and even more often not satisfactory because it doesn't turn out the way we expect. I'm sure we've all experienced some of that at one time or another. So when we no longer have to look for that because we're the one that are giving out, we have lost a great deal of an energy-consuming activity which does not bring results. And we can use our energy in a totally different direction where we are not so much self-concerned because we've lost this idea of a separate self and are far more concerned with the well-being of others. When we're concerned with the well-being of others, then our own difficulties do not arise because we are not concerned with ourselves. We can only be aware of that to which we put our attention. Where our concern is, that's what we can be aware of. So when we put our attention on others, our own difficulties are not apparent. All that is possible in a mind which has found a way to fall into a state of peacefulness and happiness, which creates a solidity and a base in the mind from which one can operate. Now, we are trying to operate from, very often, from knowledge, from what our information. We also often try to operate from our feelings, but our feelings are discolored by our sense contacts. And therefore, when we operate from the feelings that have as their cause our sense contacts, we can never be sure that they are really wholesome and beneficial. But when we operate from our feelings, which have as their cause the underlying reality of a a mind which is experiencing but not thinking, we can be sure. And this is another advantage which arises from this meditative process, namely self-confidence. Not a feeling of superiority, not one-upmanship, but the self-confidence of knowing that our reactions are going to be beneficial and harmless because we are operating from a sense of inner peace and happiness. If we're interested in the well-being of the world at large, which every thinking person is, then the sense of well-being and peacefulness which we have within will be a great advantage to the world at large because without (coughs) that sense of peace and well-being within, there can be no sense of well-being and peace without. The world has 
many difficulties. Why? Because we have many difficulties. There is no other way to overcome them within ourselves except to change our trend, our direction, and go within. It is possible to attain and uh, perfect this skill because it's been done in the past and it's being done in the present. There's no reason why every ordinary person couldn't do it. And the more people will do it, the better a world we will live in. All of us are in this together. It's a small spaceship that we are sitting on and we are constantly trying to blow it up. If that isn't the greatest absurdity that exists in the human mind, I don't know what could be greater. And why is it like that? Because we haven't trained our minds. We haven't trained our minds to go beyond this everyday self-concern of wanting and reacting to go to a deeper and greater reality where we can see that there's no separation, where we can see that peace comes from within and is not written on a piece of paper. Pieces of paper have been written so many times and signed by so many famous people. And what have they done? Very little. And we can have that kind of peacefulness that goes beyond all these differences and difficulties if we train ourselves. There is no spiritual discipline that has ever been without this. Whatever it may be called, we call it meditation. If this is our aim in life, to have a transcending understanding and a different viewpoint than the one we have had, then this would be our pathway. It is not possible to get rid of the difficulties in others. We are very often inclined to try to reform others. We wave banners and flags and write big posters and uh, stand up and uh, shout. But it's uh, very difficult to do that to change other people's minds if we can't even change our own. So this is our first priority, to change our own mind into a quality of mind which has the depth and the strength with which we then work.